0: You are listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com.
1: This is fun for us. Um, this actually is something that we um, believe God has or- been orchestrating for a really long time. Um, I'm Dave, by the way. This is my beautiful wife, Noel. Noelle. Who whistled? <laughs> See me after. We've been married for 14 years. Um, we have three amazing daughters uh, who all have interesting personalities, um, keep us very busy. Um, and this is, this is exciting and really honestly humbling. It's an honor to do this because um, we came, I, I came on staff at the church uh, almost three years ago. From a non-church ministry background, never, never desired to be a pastor, never planned to be a pastor. This was a curveball in our life that God threw to us, and uh, and we, as we prayed about this idea of joining reality, uh, coming on staff, um, one of the things that God made really, really evident to us was that God was not just calling me to be um, on staff at a church; He was calling us, the Daily family, into ministry together in the city of San Francisco, that God would actually use our marriage and our parenting, our kids' lives um, for what he wanted to do for ministry in in, in San Francisco. So, this has been a long time coming. This is exciting. I have no idea how this is gonna go today. (laughs) I'm the only one laughing. Um, Must be nervous, thanks, babe. Today we're continuing in our um, series through 1 Peter. We're getting into chapter 3 now where uh, Peter is talking specifically to wives and to husbands. So Noel is going to read our passage and pray for us as we get started today. 1
0: Peter 3, 1 through 7. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, Lord. So much of it is a mystery to us, Jesus. And I just ask that you would um, speak through us, that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing to you. God, that the hearts of all of us would be open to receive what you have for us today. So we thank you for this time and we pray just an anointing and a blessing upon it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I don't know. Move that way.
1: Um, so listen, as we read that uh, passage, there's probably people cringing in here, all right? Uh, there, there are words in here that to our Western ears and in our culture just can turn our skin. Um, as with so much in Scripture, when we read passages like this through the lens uh, of our Western culture, the way we understand things to be, that can absolutely just unnerve us with the the language that Peter's using. Uh, as we read his address to wives, Peter seems to put uh, women in this oppressive and demeaning position in marriage. Submit to your husbands, call them Lord, because you are a weaker vessel. This, this turning anyone is this bothering anyone else, okay? Like, loosen up, okay? We're gonna dig into this today. We gotta be comfortable with talking about it. Um, so we have to ask ourselves, is this really Peter's position? Is this what he's saying? What we are hearing, is that what, what he is actually saying? That wives are like slaves under the dominant rule of their master husbands. Is this what Peter is telling us? Why does Peter spend so much time putting women down and then let men off the hook with one verse at the end? That's the way it comes off, doesn't it? That that should stir in us. So let's look deeper into the possible uh, offenses and discouraging words we're hearing to find what Peter's really saying and how his readers would have received his words. So Noel's gonna start with the letters, letter to wives. All right, thanks.
0: Okay, so I have to be honest. When I read this, um, I was totally offended. <laughs> And um, there are so many things in here that I was like, "What? You got to be kidding me!" Um, first of all, the, the word submission, as I've kind of understood it, that seems pretty um, belittling and oppressive. And then it goes on to say how you should dress, what you should and shouldn't wear, it wear, um, which means style or clothes or jewelry, like all of these things that I like. You can't, you can't have that. And then it goes on to say, you have to have like a quiet and meek spirit. And I'm like, then I'm totally out because I'm not quiet and I'm very loud and very strong-willed so I feel like this can't apply to me. I'm totally missing this. And then finally he says, and here's your example, Sarah, look at her, she called her husband Lord. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. So finally we get to the part in verse seven where it's like, okay, we're gonna talk to husbands. And I'm like, yes, he's finally gonna stick it to him. We're gonna hear what he really has to say. But then he spends one verse kind of patting him on the back, like, your wife's a little weaker than you are, so you need to help her out. So I'm like, excellent. (laughs) This is my first time teaching, and I get to teach on this. Thank you, Lomas. Like, where is he, right? (sighs) (laughs) So, um, but I was willing to give it a second glance because I know there's things like the context, the cultural context, and the audience they were writing to. So maybe it meant something different than what I thought it meant. And then I look at God and what we see in scripture, and he is a God who doesn't bully the marginalized, but he comes to the rescue of, of people who are hurting and broken. And then I look at Jesus' life, and he's healing the brokenhearted and, and rescuing the downtrodden. So if that's what I see in God and the character of Jesus, and then, but this feels so different, this feels so oppressive, I thought, okay, I need to give it a second shot and find out what this really means um, so I can understand this better. So. Let's see where it starts. You guys ready to look at this with me? Okay, let's do it. Um, The portion of this scripture starts out by saying, in the same way. So, in the same way as what? Well, it's referring to chapter 2, in the same way as the slaves who were to submit to their masters. So, Peter's saying, just as slaves are in a tough situation and they're unable to change their circumstance, so you wives who are married to harsh, domineering husbands, you're in the same boat. You're powerless, you're unable to change your situation, but here's how you can live. Submit yourselves to your husbands, and the reason is so that they may be won over without words. So is Peter condoning slavery in chapter two? No. Is he condoning harsh, abusive husbands here? No. But he's speaking to an audience where this was their reality, this was the situation they're in, and he's instructing them on how to live in their difficult circumstance. So let's start by looking at the cultural context of who Peter is writing to. Peter is probably speaking to women who had converted from Judaism and paganism to Christianity, but their husbands had not. He's telling them, in this situation where you're powerless and expected by the culture to convert to your husband's faith, live in a way that shows the gospel of Jesus. Reflect Jesus in your marriage. It would have been seen as insubordination for a woman to have a different religion than her husband. It would have been seen as insubordination that she even converted her faith, because in that day and age, in the Greco-Roman culture, um, it was believed that divine beings determined the prosperity of the town, of the city. So any disorder that's in the family unit, which the husband would have controlled, would have seen as calamity falling on the entire society if, if, if one man didn't have his household in order. So for these women to have chosen the way of Jesus over their husbands and their gods was unthinkable. And So the fact is Peter isn't saying, okay wives, follow your husband's gods, like other writers of that day were saying. He's actually saying, I want you to live this way in the relationship that you have so it's really, at that time, that was a feminist affront to the popular thought, what Peter's saying. And it's, so, it's very ironic that this passage to us sounds so oppressive, when in this cultural context, a text is extremely liberating and empowering, and it was meant to affirm women. Philosophers like Aristotle and Plutarch and Socrates gave instructions on what the social norms were to be in that day. And so Peter comes in and he upholds these norms in some ways, but he subverts them. So here's how. He upholds them by saying, live in an orderly way in your home. But he subverts the social norm by addressing women at all and saying, You women, you get to choose how you behave. So the fact that he's actually addressing women in a public letter was unheard of. It gives them a sense of entitlement that the the modern day, or I mean that current thinkers, they, they they didn't give them. And the fact that he's instructing them that they get to choose how to treat their husband, that was in contrast to the social norms also, because the husband would have dictated all matters. So this message of choice would have been empowering for them. Now this patriarchal culture where the men dominate, this is not the same culture that we live in today. Our Western, modern institution of marriage doesn't have this huge power differentiation as they did. But the idea of submission is still relevant for us today. The principle that Peter is getting at that and which is live in this way that attracts others to the gospel in the middle of your difficult circumstance, that is a principle that is timeless. So what does submission mean? Okay, let's get down to this. So um, Merriam-Webster dictionary defines submission as yielding to the authority or will of another person. It was originally used as a military term to arrange troops under the command of a leader. But in non-military use, it was a voluntary attitude of cooperating with, of sharing a burden. So 1 Peter is not a marriage self-help book. Okay, this doesn't tell us exactly what to do. He's not saying, this is what you need to do in your marriage. He leaves that up to the discernment of the couples. But he is giving an overall view to say, women, in order to, to win over your husbands, act in a way that is um, sharing the burden of them, that that is meeting the, actually like following a leading of your husbands. So Peter says that the way your life and your behavior will speak, that it will speak loudly. So more than words, it's your behavior that's gonna win them over and gonna influence them. So what is this influence that Peter's talking about? Do women have some type of influence that's maybe different than men? Let's talk a little bit about the differences between males and females and how women were created with an influence. We want to say that men and women are the same across the board, that there aren't certain jobs that they should be limited to, that they are equals. And it is true, they are equal. And men and women can both be CEOs or the dominant or the main nurturing parent at home. It, it doesn't define the jobs that they are in. But we would be ignorant to say that there's no difference between males and females. Countless childhood development studies, I did psych, I mean, all, um, in, in college, and all of these studies show the differences between boys and girls. So as babies, boys are different than girls. They're, in, they're much more involved in movement and action and motion, and they run through things and over things rather than around things. And that's just, that's just the way they are. And girls are much more interactive. So you see girls mimicking the mom's facial expression or the dad's facial expression. You see them interacting. Um, they communicate verbally earlier than we see boys do. So there, is, there are differences between male and female. And we don't need the studies to tell us that there's differences. We know in Genesis 2 when God creates man, he says there's differences. So in Genesis 2 he says, let's create them in our image male and female so so god creates adam and then he creates eve from adam they both were created equal but they're different adam is given this job of naming the animals of bringing order out of something wild and eve is named Ezer, or helper so eve's named helper so let me explain this term a little bit because sometimes we think helper sounds really weak um, the hebrew word for helper is Ezer. The only other time Ezer is used is when it's referring to God himself. So he uses Ezer when he says Eve will be his helper, his Ezer. And the other time we see in the Bible is when God is referring to himself. God is my help in time of need. He is my Ezer. Okay, so we have Eve and God here using this term Ezer. So please don't misunderstand this word to mean that she's some type of sidekick or she's some type of personal assistant. That's not what this is saying. It's a word that connotes power and strength. It's saying that Eve has a skill that Adam lacks and he needs her. To help means to offer something to someone who lacks what you have. So let me give you an example. Our oldest daughter, daughter, Grace, is learning how to divide fractions, okay? So she comes to me for help. I cannot help her unless I know how to divide fractions, okay? So this is the idea, she doesn't have it, I do, I have something she doesn't have, and that's why she needs my help. I can do her homework for her, and subvert her strength, and kind of just take over, or I can use my strength, what I know, and empower her to enable her to do it. I'm offering my help to her, and actually putting my power underneath her to allow her to be enabled to do it. That's the idea of woman helping the man. But like the example of me helping Grace, we as wives are faced with the same struggle. We can either overpower our husbands or empower them. We can offer our help, which is our power, in an attempt to control our husbands. Or we can offer our power to empower them. It's the difference between being independent and interdependent. So wives, please hear this. To submit means that you are taking your God-given equality and strength and femininity and you're offering to help your husband be who he couldn't be without you. You don't need to flex your womanly muscles and control your husband's, because to control means that you're coming from a place of fear, as if you have no power. But the truth is, you have been given great power. You are easier. So now use it in the way for the good of your soul and your husband's soul and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's the part about submission. We're gonna look next. Peter goes on to say about the outward appearance. He says, don't let your outward appearance be what you adorn, but let the beauty of your heart be what you regard as important because that's what God's after. God knows that a gentle and quiet spirit is unfading and precious. This phrase, gentle and quiet spirit, which I alluded to before, always makes me feel less than um, because I feel like if you have to be quiet and meek, then I think I'm just like out of luck on this one. Um, There's no chance for me... (laughs) to be quiet, because I always thought it meant to be really soft-spoken and shy, and that wasn't wasn't me at all. Um, But as I looked more into this, this is about a heart attitude, it's not about a personality trait, okay? So God is is not saying you need to be introverted or shy, but that it's about being humble and not being anxious, being at peace within yourself. And once I realized that's what gentle, quiet, and meek spirit meant, I was like, yes, I want this, okay, I need this. Um, humility and peace whether it's worn by a woman or a man is a beautiful thing and this passage is speaking against prideful belligerent or angry actions that a christian woman here may have felt towards a harsh and domineering husband that would have been probably normal for her to feel that way but he's speaking against that and he's saying you can win your husband over with your actions not your words it's going to be your actions of gentleness and humility that do this No, it took me about four years into our marriage to realize that my words of influence weren't really influencing Dave. Um, They were nagging him. And although they were true, (laughs) (laughs) it never produced what I wanted it to. It never worked. It was never fruitful. Because either when I asked him to do something, he wouldn't do it out of spite, just to get back at me, or he would do it and he'd be resentful towards me. And I hated it, I hated it both. So what I was hoping to accomplish, for him to be the spiritual leader, for him to step up, wasn't happening. I would nag him and what he would do is he would run away. And then I would nag more and he would run away. And it was just a really bad cycle. Um, when what I really wanted was him just to step up and to be a man and to lead, but my words were not influencing him for good. And, and Peter is saying here, your actions are gonna be way more powerful than your words will be. This is hard to hear as a woman. Okay, so Peter mentions that this sort of humble attitude of inner beauty is unfading. Peter lists these outward beauty, this outward beauty like the hair and the jewelry and the clothes, and he says, don't make these things who you are. Can you still enjoy clothes and jewelry? Yes, but don't base your worth on them because it's fleeting, and we know this. We know that outward beauty is fleeting. To be beautiful physically takes time and energy and money. And even with much effort, some people never attain it. (laughs) That wasn't meant to be funny. but (laughs) But let's be honest, right? And if you are maybe one of the women who do attain this beauty in the world's eyes, It requires that you constantly feed it in order to maintain it. You don't just arrive and then you stay there. It's constant work. Styles are changing and your body's changing. This pursuit of external beauty is painful and draining and an empty endeavor. And God knows that this pursuit of the outward beauty will suck your life. It's like slipping through your hands just when you feel like you've attained it, it's gone. It never brings lasting fulfillment. So God speaks through Peter to encourage you that an inward beauty is possible and it won't destroy you in the process, but it will give you the lasting peace and the freedom you want. The reason why you're looking to these things that make you beautiful on the outside is really an inner peace and a lasting freedom that we're desiring deep down in God saying, I have it, it's this inward beauty. So this part of the passage is speaking to the inward beauty of humility, but it's also speaking to this idea of respecting your husband. So imagine this scenario. These these women were not allowed to have any social group outside of their husbands. They couldn't have their own friends. But now we have these women who are converted leaving the house and going to meet with this, this other group of believers. Okay, so they would be seen walking across town, walking across city without their husbands. So if they are dressed... With their hair all done up and big old earrings and a cocktail dress and walking across town, nobody in town would believe, oh, they're going to go worship in some respectable way, right? This would have been outrageous to them. And the thing is, Peter doesn't discourage them from worshiping, he doesn't discourage them from doing it, but instead he instructs them in a way that's gonna respect their husband. If she were, I already said that. Okay, so Peter is instructing her to be discreet for the sake of honoring the Lord and her husband. This passage is not about controlling your individuality or your beauty, but it's about honoring your husband for the sake of the gospel in your city. This is what the gospel is, that you have every right to wear big old earrings and do your hair up and a cocktail dress, but would you lay it down to honor someone else? Next we see that Peter gives us an example of a virtuous woman named Sarah. Okay, so who is Sarah? Why is Peter even referring to her as our example? So back in Genesis 2, but I'm sorry, back in Genesis 12, God calls a man named Abram who was a moon worshiper and he says, hey, follow me. And Abraham says, Abram says, yes, God changes his name to Abraham and Sarah is Abraham's wife. So Abraham and Sarah and their clan are wandering into these new lands that God's taking them. There's foreign kings and rulers and as they come into these new lands, Abraham is afraid for his life because Sarah is beautiful, and he knows these kings are gonna wanna take her as their wife. So he pulls her aside and says, hey, just tell them you're my sister, okay? And that will be, that'll work out, it'll save my hide. And Sarah goes along with the plan. All right, so this is the woman that we are supposed to be using as our, our example. Let's find out why, what's going on. Because the fact is, Abraham asks her to be deceitful, which puts her life and safety at risk. She's becoming these men, the the wives of these kings. Okay, so we can make some inferences, what's going on? And Abraham's saying, yes, you go, so that I can be saved, right? What kind of guy is this? (laughs) And he's like the father of our faith. I cannot believe this man. (laughs) So this is our example, right? We've got this man who does not man up, and Sarah submits to Abraham's cowardly and selfish decision-making and we see God come through to protect her. In both cases that we read about, God comes through to protect Sarah, even when Abraham is failing her, even when Abraham is not doing his job to protect her, God fights for her and protects her. This speaks against the idea that we only submit to our husbands when they seem deserving of our respect. This is really easy to do. If you think that he is worthy of the respect, then you'll show it, but that's not what we see here. And this is scary. This is really scary, you guys. <laughs> scary. <laughs> but what we're saying is that by obeying God and submitting to your husband, you're actually submitting yourself to God, that he is your ultimate protector. He is your rescuer. So he's not condoning polygamy or, or, or abuse or illegal activities that we need to go along with that stuff, but he's showing us this principle of obeying the Lord. He is the one that we are ultimately submitting to. Okay, so this little excerpt, I wanna just say, this is for all the single ladies who are in here. Um, This this fact is so important to consider, that you are gonna be entering a marriage covenant and God is gonna ask you to submit to this man, to follow him where he leads. So just take a minute to think. More than him being good looking or charming or intelligent, ask yourself, is he someone who obeys the Lord? Is he someone who loves the Lord? Does he follow God? Because this is the man that God is going to ask you to follow, and you want to make sure that he's following the Lord. So just keep that in mind when you're checking out and figuring out what's going on with your love life. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Back to Sarah. So here Peter connects Sarah's good deeds with her fearlessness, with trusting God. She's used as this godly example that we're here to follow because she's entrusted herself to God. There were years in our marriage where things were out of order and Dave made work a priority over me and the girls. The girls and I were in counseling because there are a ton of behavioral issues going on at the home. But God reassured me that even though Dave was failing me, that God was still protecting me and the girls. During that time I led a women's Bible study in my house and he just used these women to come around me and to minister to my heart. And, and so even though I felt alone in my marriage, like I wasn't alone. God was still reaching out and, and meeting my needs. His hand was upon me. God was my husband when I felt alone. And I found that as I entrusted myself to the Lord during that time, I actually began to pray for Dave. I'd spent a lot of years being bitter and resentful toward him, toward him, but I began to pray for him instead of nag him. And when I needed to confront Dave about areas that were imbalanced, I would. So this doesn't mean you have no boundaries and you just get walked over. You have boundaries. That is what love is. But I would, I would confront him on it, and then I would allow the Lord to work on his heart. I wouldn't continue to nag, nag, nag about it. But this requires so much trust in the Lord's protection over you. Because things don't change overnight. And they didn't change overnight. It was a lot of painful months and years of waiting on the Lord. And each time I'd see Dave screw up, I'd be tempted to show my independence and take control take back and nag him, or I'd be tempted to just pull away and harden my heart because I felt like I could not take it, the pain anymore. Only by God's grace was I able to stay in the relationship with all of me. So not pulling away, to, to save my sense of, of, of my, my heart and myself, and not overthrowing his authority and coming in to control him, but entrusting myself and my heart to Jesus who cares for me. And at the same time, knowing that Jesus was working on Dave's heart as well. This is so hard to do. If you are in a difficult situation, in difficult marriages, you know the pain of this. When something's not right with your spouse, it's not right in the world. That's how it feels. And so just entrusting your heart to the Lord over and over, knowing that he will not fail you even if your husband is. God's promises are true. Don't give up fighting for your husbands. So to sum up, our example of trusting God with our lives is lived out by Jesus, who entrusted himself to his father. And when we obey God's word to submit to our husbands, we are entrusting ourselves into the hands of Jesus who as we see in Revelations 21, will wipe away all the tears and take away all the pain and all the sorrow. He has laid down his life for us. We can entrust our hearts to him and follow his example of humble submission.
1: (laughs) Well, I hope you guys hear that we're talking today not out of a perfect marriage. A perfect story, a lot of brokenness, a lot of hard years um, getting to, to this place, which is why it's really humbling to stand here. If someone would have told us uh, back in, 2000, in the early 2000s, oh, you guys would be teaching on marriage at church, we'd just laugh, probably. Um, and, and here's the deal. And, and now I want to move into the place where, where Peter begins to speak to husbands. Um, I knew I was in for trouble the first date I t- had with Noelle. We were freshmen in college. I met her actually the first day moving into the dorms at college, freshman year. It took me nine months to, to ask her out. So in April of that year, I, I asked her out on our first date. Now, Noelle is, let me tell you who Noelle is because she won't, she won't tell you. Noelle was a 4.0 student. Uh, she played volleyball and softball in college, um, all four years on scholarship. Uh, she. Is the most godly woman I've ever met, and all of those things were true at this time, and and I was not any of those things. <laughs> and so I had to work up all my confidence to to ask Noelle out. I didn't tell her I was going to share this story because I just thought of it. I promise. Um,
0: we'll debrief after.
1: So our first date, I, I asked Noelle out uh, on a date, and so I know I'm in trouble when I show up at her dorm room door, and I am in my nicest clothes. I have on khakis and a polo shirt. These are the nicest things I own. And I show up, and Noelle is in gym shorts, a t-shirt, and just whipped her hair up out of the shower. And I could tell right away that this was way more important to me than it was to her. So we get in my, in my truck, and I'm taking her to dinner, and we are going to the crab cooker, which is like the most expensive place I could even fathom <laughs> at that time in my life. Um, it was in Newport Beach, and it was going to take all the money I, I owned at that point to get through this meal. And so we get to the crab cooker, and we have a, a reservation. We sit down, and uh, Noel looks at the menu, and she says, um, do they have anything besides seafood? I <laughs> said, so, well, it's the crab cooker. No. Oh, I don't really like seafood. Oh, okay. Um, Well, how about, I mean, I'm sure they have clam chowder. Like everyone has clam chowder, right? And so uh, she's like, sure, I'll have the clam chowder. I didn't know there's two kinds of clam chowder. There's just a New England kind, right? Like just everything you ate growing up. No, there's this other kind Manhattan. What do they do in Manhattan? Like they take squid and like weird things and put it into a soup. And so they bring that over and she just kind of goes, oh, no thanks. So literally we sit at our first meal and she eats the bread that's on the table. While I'm eating crab. And, um, <laughs> and then we leave. We get back in my truck and, uh, and we start driving. I have this night planned out. She's like, where are we going? I'm like, well, I just kind of want to surprise you. And she's like, okay, okay, that's cool. I just hope you're not taking us to play miniature golf because that is the stupidest idea <laughs> for a first date. Anyone could ever come up. That's like not even trying to be creative you turn the truck. <laughs> we end up sitting in my truck at the beach just talking. It was really great, really great night. But here's, I can honestly tell you, like, after that, that night, I remember saying to God, I can't, <laughs> I, how do I even, like, do this with this woman? How, how Like, and I had, you guys, this is, and this is, what what I want to get into is that I had this really horrible understanding of what it meant to to love a woman and to be a leader over a woman. I had no concept. Um, and the problem is that for generations, people in the church have used this letter of First Peter, this portion to assert their dominance over women in, in the culture, in the church, and in their homes. And I have to be honest, this is the way I understood it to be as a husband, that she was commanded to submit to me. And it was my way or the highway. And it's, it's, it was terrible, it was terrible. And it was, if, if I can be honest, completely frightening. Because I don't know the way. <laughs> How am I supposed to do that? It was wrong, it was out of order, and it was terrifying. Guys, it's even common today, today, that God-fearing, Christ-loving husbands and pastors take this portion of scripture, and they lead their wives and their congregations into completely false, destructive relationships. So we have to understand rightly what Peter is asking of husbands, And when we say husbands, you need to know it goes beyond that. Peter cared about what was happening in that city with those new Christians and how the people were going to receive them. So this went not just for husbands, but for anyone who had an authority position with people underneath them, who had privilege over others. He's speaking to that. These principles, this theme applies. So although Peter spends the bulk of this portion of his letter addressing women, wives directly, which Noel pointed out, The fact that he would call them by name was in and of itself very subversive, very empowering. It nevertheless does not leave men off the hook. Because they got six verses and we got one. Listen to the weight of the one. It's important. The instruction that Peter is giving to husbands is perhaps more radical even than what he was saying to wives. And the way it subverts the culture that they were living in for the glory of God. We have to remember something when we read this. That in this time, in this place in history, the man was quite literally the king of the castle. Meaning that the expectation in the cultural system demanded that women worship as he worshipped. That they socialize as he socialized. That the husband was complete lord over the wife. And that she was bound to him. In every way, his desires, his ethics, his household structure, everything. The wife had little or no identity at all outside of her husband. It's so important that we hear this the right way. Listen to what Peter's speaking to. So when Peter says to husbands, and he begins his verse to them, in the same way, He is carrying over what began from the very beginning in chapter two before he ever got to slaves and then wives and then husbands. He said this, live good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits visits us. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people He's calling that ignorant. Do good so you can silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Instead, live as God's slaves. This is so important. Listen to this. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God and honor the emperor. (laughs) This message was for all believers in Asia Minor. And then Peter gives it specific context. For slaves, for wives, for husbands. And he moves to husbands. All of them are being called to fear God, live within the order of the culture, and win non-believers by legitimizing their faith. For husbands, this meant a radical, radical shift in their house. Peter instructs husbands to respect their wives As the weaker vessel and as co-heirs, do you hear that? Co-heirs of the gracious gift of life. Let's look at the two ways that Peter describes women here because it's really important we understand it the right way. First, he calls them the weaker vessel. Listen, there's no way of getting around the fact that Peter is in one sense, in one sense, describing physical strength that men have over women. This is a silly point. I don't even want to argue about it. If you have an issue, wrestle with Tark in the parking lot, okay? Like, (laughs) it just is what it is. Men are created physically stronger than women. Just is is what it is. Unfortunately, men have used physical strength for abhorrent purposes all of human history. This goes beyond just husbands and wives. This is is in every way. You need to hear this. Any, and all use of power to control, to dominate, to enforce one's will and or desire over another human being is detestable. It's detestable and it's absolutely abominable in God's sight. To use your strength, to use your power, to use your privilege to dominate another is absolutely wrong. In fact, that's just what Peter is addressing here with husbands. You see, in in this culture, they had every right to dominate. They had every right and expectation to dominate. This meant emotionally, this meant economically, and this meant sexually. In every way, they had a right to dominate everything in their house. And it was the expectation that they would to keep order. Peter's words stand in direct opposition of this. Do you hear that? He's standing in direct opposition of this posture. Rather than dominating their wives, Peter's demanding that believing husbands respect their wives. Wives were not to be treated as sex slaves, as servants in their home any longer. They were to be respected. This is radical. Do you understand understand this? Husbands, but this goes, again, beyond just husbands, people in authority, you need to hear this. You don't demand submission. You have no right to demand submission of anyone, of anyone. It is a gift that is given to you. In fact, Husbands, I'm speaking to you directly. If you have ever, if you have ever demanded submission of your wife, that reveals to me you don't understand who Christ is and what he lived out and what his work did on the cross. You don't understand it. You have no right to do that. I, w- I want you to hear this. Because that actually speaks to a place in our own heart, husbands, if we would ever take that posture. Listen to this quote from well-known authors and counselors, uh, Henry Cloud and John Townsend. They wrote a book called Boundaries. Listen to what they said. We have never seen a submission problem, quote-unquote, that did not have a controlling husband at its root. When the wife begins to set clear boundaries, the lack of Christ-likeness in a controlling husband becomes evident because the wife is no longer enabling him to be uh, in his immature behavior. I can testify to this. This is me they're talking about. She is confronting the truth and setting biblical limits on hurtful behavior. Often when the wife sets boundaries, the husband begins to grow up. Did you hear her say, mm? Mm-hmm. Like, mm. <laughs> preach. <laughs> you guys, this is this is this is my journey um, uh, of having a false understanding of my role in in the house, uh, of what God had called me into, um, and Noel being patient and gentle with me all the years of our marriage to come to a right understanding. Of what this is submission is not about control it's not about ego it's not about selfish pursuits but instead when the christian wife is seeking to love her husband with her whole being and the husband is seeking to love his wife with his whole being submission never emerges (laughs) there is no submission issue if Noel is living out and loving me with all of her being and I am living out and loving Noel with all of my being, we don't have conversations about submission or, or who's right or who is the one to make the decision. It doesn't work that way. Now back to Peter. He was certainly addressing physical strength over weakness when he talks about the weaker vessel. But it's beyond that. He is also dealing with the social Husbands were to become their wives' advocates. Wives had no standing, no power, no authority, very few rights. Peter's subverting all of this within the home with a charge for husbands to respect their wives. Guys, we need to hear this, that as we talked about with slavery, we ask ourselves so many times, why didn't God just... Abolish slavery. Why didn't he just turn it on its head? He's against it, right? Yes, everything we know about Christ it comes to the rescue of the oppressed, fights for the marginalized. But Jesus doesn't come as a political God. Jesus, Jesus doesn't come as a military God. He comes as a personal God. He deals with your heart. He dealt with my heart to change my marriage. He didn't change the the social structure around us, hoping that it would change my heart. He changes my heart so it changes everything else around us, right? So whatever it is you're fighting for with the marginalized, it begins within your heart with Christ being the centerpiece of your heart and the love and abundance of that moving out and then changing everything around you. It's the only lasting way this happens. You see, husbands are called to sacrifice themselves. Back in that culture and today, to give up whatever privilege they have for the sake of their wife. This is why it's so important, to Peter, that slaves and women and wives and husbands do good, fear God, and honor the emperor. If we want to change the way the church thinks about marriage, then we better be people that live to love our spouse and lay our lives lives down for one another. It's the only way this changes. Okay, I'm running out of time. Hmm. Okay. So listen, listen, Peter uses another term. He calls wives co-heirs in this gracious gift of life. And this, again, was radical language because what Peter was doing was leveling the playing field. Leveling the playing. Not only were husbands called to respect their wives, which was absolutely unnecessary in this context. He calls them to do it anyway. He says do it because they're co-heirs. They are equals in this with you. They get everything that you get. They are to me everything that you are to me. It's what Peter is saying. And this should shift and change. Listen, when we talk about Ephesians 5, you want to read about marriage, read Ephesians 5. In this radical language Paul uses to the early church, he says that husbands, you are to love your lives as Christ loved the church. What did he do? He laid his life down This is the same place that Peter starts back in chapter 2. He says, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might what? Follow in his steps. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead... He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. This is what Noel was talking about. As we live this out, we're not just doing this for our spouse. We're doing this because we love the Lord. He will take care of the details. He will be our rescuer and protector. So this, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you. Follow in his steps. Husbands, this means laying your life down. And this is the way you need to think of it. There was never before and there never will be again any being that ever walked on this earth that had more power, more authority, more privilege, more right than Christ. No one, whoever was or ever will be, had what Christ had, who came down literally as God-man, powerful over natural and supernatural. And what do we see? Does he dominate over people? Does he force people into submission? No. We see him walk. Not in a chariot. He walks from city to city. He doesn't have a palace or a kingdom. He rarely has a place to lay his head. He's chased out of towns by those he comes to save. He is tried a criminal's trial he is publicly executed in shame and husbands this is our model that anything that God has given you and I'm speaking not just to husbands now if you're if you're a CEO if you're an employer, if you're a manager over other people, if you have any way in your family structure in anything that you have authority or privilege over others, this is the call of Christ, that you lay that down for the benefit of them. That I would live out my life to cultivate Noel, To build up her gifts, to encourage her, to lift her up at the cost Of me, there will be sacrifice and it's right and it's good. It's the way God designed it. This is your model, husbands, Christ unto the church. If Abraham was the husband who sacrificed Sarah to save his own life, Christ is the husband who dies for his bride. And he is our model. So listen, um, as we close here, we need you to know that this is not a marriage manual. (laughs) Okay? This is not talk about the ways things work in the house. This is not talk about all the other areas of married life. Okay? And in many ways, this is speaking broader than marriage. Okay? But this is important to us that we walk through this together. And so we're going to be doing these things as a church Um, starting in December, where we gather as married couples, have dinner, and we just share. And and we will share more parts of our marriage and our story. Uh, And we will talk about lots of different parts of marriage that don't get talked about um, so that we might actually live this out together. It, It took us being mentored and cared for by a lot of amazing couples, godly, loving couples that walked with us through this and, and we feel like that's one of the reasons God, God's brought us here, is to do that. Okay, so more information about that. But uh, we want to close with, um, Noel has a word for husbands, and I have a word for the wives. So, Noah.
0: Okay. So this is for husbands, but husbands to be. So all men. Okay. Do not be afraid to come out towards your wife. Step out to protect them and provide for them. Provide for them emotionally and spiritually, not just financially. Cultivate their heart. If you have no idea how to do that, admit it and ask the Lord for help. Ask the Holy Spirit to teach you how to love her well. She wants you to pursue her and fight for her. Fighting for her often looks like just sticking with it, not giving up because she disappoints you or irritates you or tries to control you. Stick with it. And stand strong when she challenges you. If there are boundaries that she puts up, don't run away from it. You are meant to sharpen each other. You're a team, so work to fight for her and with her, not against her. Pray for her. Pray for her soul to be at peace with who God has made her to be. That is a beautiful thing when you see that. And love that woman with everything that you have. And when you reach the end of yourself, love her by the power of the Holy Spirit. No matter how hard your marriage may seem, do not give up on it. With Christ, all things are possible. And share your desires and your hopes and your dreams of your marriage, what you want, share those with the Lord. And allow him to work those things out in you and in your wife and in your marriage. I love you men. We need you.
1: That was a little weird, but <laughs> I think, I think. Not, the not just not. the one that whistled. Yeah. All of you. <laughs> okay, for um, for wives, um, within our Christian culture, there is this call, um, this hope for men to be spiritual leaders, and I hear so many um, single women, even, even married ladies who, who come into the counseling office and say, I just want my husband, I just want this man to be a spiritual leader. And I honestly believe that any uh, of us men who, who love Jesus have that desire as well. Here's the problem. Almost none of us have any idea what that looks like. <laughs> Almost none, of all the guys I know in my life that I ever grew up with from elementary school to now, I know probably one or two that any kind of godly model of what a husband, father, leader looked like. And I think that's, that's the case for most of us. We don't know what we're doing, ladies, okay? Uh, you are marrying a little puppy who has to, I'm, <laughs> just own it. Just own it. We, ha- we have to learn how to do this. And so what I'm asking on behalf of, of us husbands and husbands-to-be is for grace, generous, generous grace. Noelle has been just unbelievably graceful to me in our marriage. And I know that I could not stand here and do what we're doing in our life right now if it weren't for the way she loved me through my faults and my failures. If you have a spouse, ladies, who is lacking as a spiritual leader, I can almost guarantee that he is more aware of it than you are. (laughs) So pray for him. Earnestly pray for him. Encourage him generously. Be patient, because God is a patient and long-suffering God with all of us. By God's grace and love, he will come around. I believe that. I can testify to that. Let's pray. God, your word in um, the early chapters of Genesis, God, in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, when you are designing this thing called marriage and this relationship, between husbands and wives, Lord. The language you use is this language of completion. God, so we see this as a gift, as a way that you make me, Lord, more of who I am meant to be because of Noel. And God, you make Noel more of Noel, who Noel is meant to be through me God, this is a rough process of sharpening jagged edges, God, but it's by your grace. For your glory, God, this is not, this is not, God, to have these self-satisfying relationships. That's so short-sighted, Lord. This is for the glory of your kingdom that people might fall in love with you, God, because they see People loving this sacrificial life together. Living in it with one another, Lord. And we want to be that, God, but it's only by your grace and only by your power. So would you do that in us, Jesus? Amen.